Welcome to another CPMS News Podcast. This is Meg Monk, and today I will be speaking with a very special guest, Dr. Mario Capecchi of the University of Utah School of Medicine. Dr. Capecchi has won numerous awards, including the 2007 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine and the National Medal of Science. Dr. Capecchi will be presenting the Isaac Christensen Lectures on January 24th. His general public lecture, titled The Making of a Scientist, An Unlikely Journey, will be at 4 p.m. in the Joseph Smith Building Auditorium. The technical lecture will be at 2 p.m. in W112 of the Benson Science Building. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Kopecki. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Okay, just a couple questions about your beginnings. So um, I've done some research on you and kind of learned a bit about how you grew up in Italy. Um, so after the Nazis arrested your mother during World War II, you spent time living on the streets of northern Italy. Can you just tell us a bit about kind of your experiences with that and kind of what you were thinking at that time in your life? Uh-huh. Uh, well, what I was thinking about is very simple, food and shelter. Uh, that's what's required for survival, and the, and the, and the main task was simply to survive. Uh, so I think, and that pretty much occupied uh, all day. Uh, you know, this was during the war, and there wasn't a lot of food around, and it, uh, uh, nobody was going to give it to you, and so you have to steal it. And so it had to, uh, you have to become adept at that and not get caught. And if you did get caught, then off you go to a reformatory uh, uh, school or whatever. Mm-hmm. So at that point, did you feel like you had any real future? or? I think what you're really uh, mostly thinking about is the immediate goals mm-hmm. and uh, procuring food and uh, making sure that you survive till the next day. If I had been an adult, I think I would have thought more much about the situation. But as a child, I think what you do is simply face that as being reality and then uh, proceed as the best you can. Right, definitely. So after you and your mother were reunited and moved to the United States, how was your experience living in a new country not knowing any English? Takes a while. Unfortunately, at that age, I was nine years old when I came to the United States, uh, you pick up new languages quite quickly. And in fact, probably in about a month, I was speaking English uh, quite well, even though previously I had a, never been in school before, uh, and they simply selected to put me in the third grade. And uh, B, uh, I certainly didn't speak any English. But the one thing that my family did, this was my aunt and uncle and mother, they didn't allow me to speak any Italian. And so they, it was deep immersion and, uh, and only English, and, and therefore I picked it up fairly quickly. So you believe that method worked then, just like diving right into it? Oh, yeah. No, I think that's probably the best method. And fortunately, kids, when they're young, can, uh, can uh, learn new languages at a remarkable speed. I mean, unfortunately, we lose that capability uh, after once we get into the later teens. Before that, you can actually pick multiple languages up, keep them straight, and, uh, and do quite well with them. Wow, that's very fortunate that you had that experience then. Uh, yep. No, I was very lucky. Yeah. Do you feel like these experiences in your early childhood had an impact on your later career? I think, you know, what it did teach me is self-reliance, that I wasn't, you know, people aren't going to give me something. I had to uh, be able to get it myself. Uh, And I think in terms of my science, uh, I am also self-reliant in the sense, you know, if you meet a problem where you don't have the expertise, you have two possibilities. One, you could collaborate with somebody that has that expertise, or you can learn that expertise yourself. And I usually opt for the latter, and that's 
primarily because I think, you know, if you then have the expertise, then you can utilize it in any way you want, and therefore you are self-reliant. Mm-hmm. So do you, what inspired you to go to, into science in college? So I went to a Quaker school in, uh, in high school. And in Quaker school, what you learn is uh, that there are massive uh, problems, uh, and many of them are political problems. And so actually my first quarter was actually in political science. But I, uh, after one quarter, I decided there wasn't very much science in political science, <laughs> so I switched to physics. So you preferred the science aspect then rather than the politics? Yeah. Yeah, and so and that turned out to be a very good match. The other thing that was fortunate in the school I went to, the college, was that I had a work study program. So we studied a quarter and we uh, then uh, worked a quarter, and we studied a quarter and worked a quarter. And so it was a five-year total immersion program, and the jobs were all over the country and dependent on what your interests are. If you were a theater major, then you had theater jobs. If you were interested in law, you had clerking jobs. And if you're a scientist, you had laboratory jobs. And the advantage is that you, A, found out a whether you really liked what you were doing because you had two and a half years of experience in the workforce in that particular field. Uh, and secondly, you got a lot of training in it so that once you got to graduate school, I already had an enormous amount of uh, laboratory experience already, two and a half years' worth, uh, and so was able to get into graduate work very quickly and uh, work very effectively. Right. That must have been a very valuable experience for you then. Then it was. No, it was, it's a terrific program, and I'm surprised, actually, that other uh, colleges and universities haven't picked it up. It's fairly unique in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so was it during this time that your interest was piqued in molecular biology? Yes, and then when I was in physics, and I loved physics, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful, it's aesthetically pleasing, but I wasn't uh, that excited about the problems that physicists were going after. At that time, they were making just bigger and bigger cyclotrons and uh, ways essentially of smashing atoms together, requiring bigger equipment and uh, larger teams, and I wanted to get into a science where you, you actually were involved with your own hands. But at that time, molecular biology was just being born, and I was working at MIT as part of one of my jobs, mm-hmm. uh, and then got immersed essentially in molecular biology just as it was being born. And that seemed very exciting because also there was an influx at that time from people from physics, from chemistry, from biology, from genetics, all thinking about the similar problems, but now a completely new approach. And that was very exciting. Right. So um, you work with Dr. James Watson, right? Mm, yeah. He was a terrific mentor. I mean, he's a, he has strange habits and sometimes speaks his mind a little bit too fluently, but he knew where everything was going on in the whole world and would keep us abreast of what was happening, uh, and it was an extremely exciting time. Right. Was that intimidating at all, working with such a respected scientist? Oh, yeah. No, I think it's, uh, you know, it was a privilege to work with him. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I taught, you know, from him I learned not so much how to do science because I already had two and a half years of lab experience, but how to tackle problems, you know, how to ask questions and how to see what the basic problems are in a, any given field. 
so it's a it's a it's a very different process, and and, uh, and one has to have that appreciation of you know how do you look at something new, and then see what are the questions that are a approachable but also important. Right. So your career has obviously taken a very successful turn, and you recently won the Nobel Prize. Um, can you tell me a bit about what was going through your head when you found out that you won? <laughs> well, the, they call you up in the middle of the night. It was actually uh, about 3 a.m. in the morning, and the phone is actually right next to my wife. And so she picked up the, <laughs> the phone, and she thought it was a crank call, so she actually hung up. But fortunately, they were persistent. They called back again. This time, she handed it to me, and then we found out it was the Nobel Prize Committee. So it's always an enormous surprise because they're uh, they're looking at many, many different people at any given year, and so you have no idea what's going to happen. But half an hour later, there were probably about forty reporters in the house. <laughs> Four a.m. Uh, you know, and all a whole bank of telephones, and you were talking to people all over the world uh, in terms of congratulations and so on. Mm-hmm. Kind of a busy morning. And it was very exciting. And uh, you no, know, and there's a great tribute also to the University of Utah and uh, and everything they did to uh, promote uh, our working here. Right. So you moved from Harvard to the University of Utah. Why did you make that switch? Uh, <laughs> I made it for two reasons. One of the questions that I was often asked at Harvard was, what's new? And then if you're asked that question over and over again, pretty soon you work on problems that in a few days you have a solution. These are what I call short-term gratification. Uh, most of the things I was interested in work on was actually I knew it was going to take several years to develop. And so I didn't feel that that was going to be a good environment for that. And the other was simply, I'm in science because it's fun, it's, uh, and I enjoy it, and it's, you know, we don't get paid a lot, but we do what we want to do, and uh, if we're lucky, you know, we're creative and, uh, and make significant contributions. To build that, you need to have people think about what's called synergy, that is, people working together, because multiple people working together is much better than any individual can do by themselves. And so there's an opportunity that a new department was being born here and uh, had a very good uh, leader. His name was Lark. And uh, he uh, recruited me, took about two years to talk me into it. Uh, And then what they did, they seduced me by taking me camping in the Wind Rivers. So I spent about 10 days in the Wind Rivers, and that was marvelous. Uh, and so I decided to come to Utah, build a new department, and see whether what we could accomplish here. And obviously you found success. It was a very good choice. You know, Utah's a beautiful state. I mean, right now, if you look out the window, it looks a little buggy. <laughs> but most of the time, it's sunny, and it's really a gorgeous state. Uh, and we're very lucky to have such splendor all around us. Right. Um, so you are best known for your work with knockout mice. Can you tell me a bit about that research? Uh-huh. First of all, you know, why do we work on mice? And the reason is that with respect to genes, they're about 99 the same as us. So whatever we find out in a mouse is usually also true in humans. So we use it as a, a surrogate, essentially, for humans. Uh, we, can't, we can do enormous amounts of experiments in mice, which are ethically not doable in a human, because we don't want to use a human as a guinea pig. Mm-hmm. So what we can do is, what we did is develop a way of being able to change genes. 
And genes essentially uh, guide all the characteristics of us and even some of our behaviors. Uh, and so by changing a gene, well, what do we, we can do, for example, if we knock it out, then we can ask what happens to the mouse in the absence of that gene. And so if now little finger disappears, we know that we're in the program for making little finger. And therefore, we can infer what that gene is doing by seeing what happens to the mouse in the absence of that gene function. And usually, that will be the same thing in humans. I mean, an example is we put a gene in the middle of a gene called Hox13. And in the mouse, it does two things. One, it makes it alopecia, that's bald, and the other has defective nails. So then we can ask other people that are walking around that are bald and have defective nails, and they do. And we can look at their DNA, and what we find out is an exact same gene that we knocked out in the mouse. So that closes the circle, showing that whatever we learn in the mouse is directly applicable to humans. And this has been done thousands upon thousands of times now, so that now we can actually model any disease we want in mice, that's a human disease that's caused by a particular gene or set of genes. For example, we're modeling cancer, we're modeling psychiatric disorders, and so on, in the mouse and learning about how it works. And then once we actually figure out how that gene works, we can use that mouse essentially as a platform for them to develop new therapies for the disease, for example, a specific type of cancer. So how long have you been doing this research with the knockout mice? It all started here in Utah, and we started back in the 1970s. It took us about 10 years to develop it, uh, and then ever since, we've then been utilizing it. And now it's utilized by thousands of laboratories all over the world. Wow. So where do you hope to see the, the research go in the future with this? Going strongly, we're now even trying to extend this technology now way beyond what we can do in mice. Can we do it in other creatures, uh, other animals? And each animal has something to tell us that's special. I mean, for example, there are animals that are completely resistant to viral infection. Okay. Uh, and it doesn't matter. You could put into those animals the worst virus that you know, kills at the human in just a few days, uh, and that animal simply does it. It gets infected, but does, nothing happens to it. So the question is, what does that animal know that we don't know? And would that be uh, useful for us to know? It's those kind of questions we can now start to approach in other types of creatures and to work out their secrets to what they know that we don't know that would be useful to human health. Right. It sounds like there's a lot of potential there. An enormous potential. But we don't know exactly how to do it yet, but we have some sort of ideas. Right now I know what not to do, but I don't know exactly what to do. <laughs> right. But hopefully in the next 10 years I will crack it. Mm -hmm. Well, we hope so also. Thank you. Well, thank you for being willing to talk with me today, Dr. Kopecki. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, and I look forward to coming to BYU and uh, talking with all of you. If you would like to hear more of Dr. Kopecki's story, come to the Isaac Christensen Lectures on January 24th. His general public lecture, titled The Making of a Scientist, An Unlikely Journey, will be at 4 p.m. in the Joseph Smith Building Auditorium. The technical lecture will be at 2 p.m. in W112 of the Benson Science Building.